Well, hey, uh, good morning, everybody. We are continuing in our fall vision series called Future Present, in which we're looking at some of the challenges that face our culture and asking what is Jesus' vision of an alternative society to the norms and the values that are all around us, a society that bears the marks of the future at the renewal of all things. And we're looking at some spiritual practices that we see in the life of Jesus that help index our hearts toward his life in the kingdom so that we can be a people of the future in the present. And this morning, we're naming our desire to be a community of grace in a culture of judgment. So with that, I invite you to read along with me from Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 10. After just a few brief introductory remarks and greetings to the church, Paul begins with this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace You have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that you would come upon us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that Through these words, we would hear them not simply as good advice, but as the good news of your kingdom that is breaking into the world, that we might be a people who reflect your love, your mercy, your grace, and your kindness to the world. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and we pray this. May our prayers be as frequent as our breath. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the very first pages of the Bible, Adam, whose name itself means mankind, is confronted with the reality of his sin. And his immediate response is to shift the blame over to Eve, ultimately to God, This woman that you put in the garden here with me gave me the fruit. And notice he doesn't even name her. She is reduced to the source of his troubles. This is a posture of contempt. 
blame shifting, anger, the soul of shame is never far beneath the surface. This is the story of the human condition. Arthur Brooks is a professor of public policy at Harvard Business School. And for the last few years, he has been writing and speaking about what he sees as a dangerous trend in the public sphere of American life. He calls it the coarsening of American culture. Now, it goes without saying that there have always been profound ideological differences at the heart of American society. From the very beginning, you can look no further than Exhibit A of the epic, historic rap battles between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. And the thing that kept James Madison, another uh, framer of the nation, up at night, and he wrote about it in Federalist Number 10, is that mob rule and the innate human tendency toward factions pose a deep threat to this burgeoning and fragile American project. He described factions as this division into in-groups and out-group teams that become so consumed with animosity toward each other that they arrange themselves more in a posture of frustrating the opposition than they do of working toward the common good. So there's always been conflict at the heart of American society, but what Brooks sees as different within the last 10 to 15 years is the rise, not just of anger and conflict, but the rise of contempt. That is the conviction of the utter worthlessness of your opponent. I read a random article this week from the National Academy of Sciences on motive attribution asymmetry. Don't judge me for how I spend my time. <laughs> but the bottom line of the article is that adversaries tend to attribute their own actions to love while they see those similar actions by others as hate. And therefore, they view those others as the enemy with whom there can be no negotiation, there can be no compromise. And poll after poll has shown that this coarsening of American life, this contempt has been ratcheting up by degree and degree over the last several years so that we don't simply think that those who think differently about social, moral, political, or ethical issues as being wrong or misguided, we are coming to increasingly think and speak of them as stupid, as wicked, as not worthy of care and dignity. And this contempt pours itself out in a posture of criticism and judgment. But what's different now that James Madison could not possibly have predicted is that the power that the internet gives us to separate ourselves out like a, a digital Berlin wall into little self-contained ghettos of ideological tribes, these factions who exist in completely separate information worlds from those with whom they disagree. In a May 22 article uh, in the Atlantic titled, Why the Last 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid, great title, and the article well worth the read, the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt pointed to a pair of innovations in 2009 that sped our culture of contempt and judgment along. And they're not what you might think. They are the seemingly innocuous creation of the like button on Facebook and the retweet button on Twitter. 
Both came out in 2009, and of them he writes this. Shortly after its like button began to produce data about what best engaged users, Facebook developed algorithms to bring each user the content most likely to generate a like or some other interaction, eventually including the share feature as well. Later research showed that posts that trigger emotions, especially anger at outgroups, are the most likely to be shared. The result has been millions and millions of people from elected leaders to talking heads on television to your mom and dad flooding the zone with negativity. Ideological tribes judging the intentions and the character of those who aren't in the tribe while excusing the behavior of those who are in the tribe as being justified and good. Chris Weatherall, the lead developer at Twitter who came up with the retweet button, has since left Twitter watching his creation become, quote, an anger video game designed to shame and abuse and harass. Of this creation, he says, we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. These newly tweaked platforms seem designed to bring out our worst impulses, allowing us to rage at the world from behind the veneer of a screen. But if I were to press his metaphor just a little bit, I would say that it's not that the weapon is loaded with bullets, it's instead loaded with little tiny toxic darts. Just one of them isn't going to be enough to take you down, just enough to make you uncomfortable, just enough to feel the sting. But the problem is that it's not just one dart. It's millions fired worldwide, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the result is contempt, moral superiority, the lack of intelligent, thick, nuanced argument, televised political debates that are never really about policy or unpacking substantive ideas, but about who can perform for their own group on camera, who can best get that one line in to own the opposition. And in public life, it looks like people taking pride in nitpicking each other's words, this avalanche of shaming, trolling, canceling, blaming, banning books, banning language, and don't even get me started on the church. Institutions everywhere are buckling under the weight of contempt, judgment, and the lethal sting of online venom. But of course, internet meanness isn't just a a symptom. We live in a culture of judgment where everybody is mad about something. And if you're really good at stoking the fires of anger, you can actually make a pretty dang good living. Outrage has become, in our culture, another industrial complex. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that anger isn't legitimate. And I'm not saying that there's no place for making a judgment call about the rightness or wrongness of moral action. There is great evil in the world. There are things that vandalize God's intention for the world, and they should make us angry. Anger is just a natural emotional response to the injustices we see, to the injustices we ourselves face, but it can easily, all too easily, be contorted into what Paul and Jesus call the flesh. 
Which is why over and over again, Jesus warns about the corrosive effects of anger, the slow ruin that begins to take hold of the heart that seethes in anger. He says this in the Sermon on the Mount. I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, everyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. Raka is an Aramaic word for empty-headed. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus isn't pulling any punches about this. But Jesus also shows us the force of the right kind of anger in the temple when he turns over the money changers' tables who were exploiting the poor. And so oftentimes we think, well, Jesus has done it. We have a model for the kind of righteous anger. But if we are honest with ourselves, much of the anger that we experience and that leaks out of us, we cannot call righteous anger. So much of the time it is simply rooted in our pain and in our fear. Our wounds become the places from which we wound others. What Jesus is warning his disciples about is guarding our hearts against this anger that is rooted in contempt. This this anger that allows us to treat others as less than human, that that robs them of the, the dignity that we desire for ourselves, that robs them of their humanity. While in a position of pride, we elevate ourselves, have this sense of moral superiority. And from that posture, we see our contempt and our anger and our judgment as a moral virtue and not as a vice. Which is exactly why Jesus tells us that even speaking to others in a way that abuses them or that demeans them gives just a little bit of a foothold toward that bitterness and that contempt that will ruin the soul. Jesus' little brother, James, says something very similar. He writes this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Take that, frame it, stick it over your computer. Remember it next time somebody on the internet says something wrong. Therefore, he goes on, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, which in this context is that kind of meditative, seething anger, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Shift your posture from speaking in anger and humbly accept the word planted in you, the word that is the story of God's grace in Jesus, as opposed to the many zero-sum game stories of our world. And the thing is, we all know this to be true. I mean, nobody really wants to live a life like this. We want to be people of grace and peace instead of people of fear and contempt and judgment, but we don't always know how to get there. And I suspect that beneath a lot of that anger and that rage that goes on in our world behind Every rant on the digital thunderdome that is Twitter, behind every uh, email of anger from a coworker, beneath every, every eye roll from a spouse or a child, underneath all of the vitriol and anger and judgment is some pain and a whole lot of fear. 
I'm reminded of something that James Baldwin wrote. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And nobody wants to deal with pain. Pain over the past. Fear over the future. Pain of unmet needs. Fear of scarcity. Pain from not being seen by others. Fear that if people really were to see you for who you really are, there would be nothing but shame. Fear that if we were to face the reality of who we are in ourselves and not who we pretend to be, that we would be met with the pain of judgment by ourselves, by others, by God. Fear is this survival instinct. It's designed to keep our bodies alive. But in a world that is corrupted by sin, our bodies can become overcome by fear. And at the point that it is no longer a servant, but a master of us. And when we are overcome by fear, when it becomes habituated in our actions, it spills out in contempt and in judgment. It sabotages our deepest desire, which is to be people of grace and mercy and love. So that's the problem. Question, of course, is how do we even begin to imagine a different reality? How do we follow a different script so that we don't get sucked into the vortex of anger and contempt that we see all around us, but instead respond to the world with a posture of grace and love? And are there practices from the way of Jesus that will help direct our hearts toward grace and away from a posture of fear and judgment? Well, the good news is there are. There are many of them. But near the very top of the list are the practices of reading the Bible for spiritual formation. The reason that we read and we preach from the Bible every single week, and the reason that we are taking forever to go through the Gospel of Mark is just so that you would see the way that God's grace works in and through the person of Jesus of Nazareth, so that you would see God's grace to you. We study the Bible in order to see the, the ark and the purpose of God's grace told over the whole story from Genesis to Revelation of how God's mercy and compassion culminates in the person of Jesus and then spills out into the community known as the church. And we meditate on Scripture so that we internalize God's word of grace to us so that when you read the Scriptures, they become a means of grace to you where you encounter the living God who shapes us into the, the, the likeness of Jesus for the sake of others. In other words, to tell a different story, to live a different story, you got to first experience a different story. And the story of the Gospel is that while we are more broken than we ever care to admit we are also at the same time more loved than we would ever dare to imagine. 
Time and time again in the pages of the Bible, this steady cadence comes out that describes God as one who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We see this all throughout the scriptures. We see it in Exodus that the Lord is compassionate and gracious. In Psalms, God is gracious and compassionate. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, says Isaiah, to have compassion on you. In Joel, for he is gracious and compassionate. This is just a smattering of the many instances that that take and hold up and lift up God's grace and God's mercy and God's compassion to us. That God's primary posture toward the world is not one of anger and contempt, but one of grace. The gospel writer John says that he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. This is why every letter that Paul writes in the New Testament begins with this formula, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it's his way of saying that over and against all of the anxiety and the fear and the pain of the world, God's grace toward you is the most fundamental reality in which you stand. It is a love that casts out fear. This idea that Jesus has extended grace, the The New Testament's concept of atonement at the heart of it is that God has made peace on the cross, has extended grace to us while we were still enemies with God. And this grace then makes possible reconciliation to us with God. It it gets into us and it creates reconciliation between the various ethnic groups that were at war with one another. This is a major theme of all the New Testament letters. Grace breaks into interpersonal relationships, into the very powers and principalities of the universe. In other words, grace defines God's posture toward all of creation. And yeah, so Jesus' vision of life in the kingdom is that his people would be a community of grace, drawing God's breath into our lungs and exhaling grace out into the world, a world that is buckling under the oppressive weight of judgment. So Paul is getting at in his letter with the Ephesians and just Ten short verses, he lays out the whole arc of human history, that we were created on purpose, that we were created for a purpose, to partner with God in the flourishing of all creation. But rebellion, sin, they were the chosen postures, and the result is pretty stark. He says, you were dead in your transgressions. As starting places go in a letter, that's, like, that's pretty rough. But Paul is like an artist who uses shade and light and color to create a point of emphasis. He's highlighting the negative space of sin so that the light of grace will show up all the more. He's telling the story of grace and he says, you cannot know the fullness of this story without knowing the depth of sin, without knowing the weight of it and how it has gotten into and cast everything under its spell. But grace is greater than judgment. What Paul wants the Ephesians to see is that Though they were dead in their transgressions, they are, by the kindness of God, made alive in Christ. It is by grace you are saved, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. In other words, this grace is not a moral achievement on your part. 
So there is no room for the recipients of this grace to stand over others in a posture of moral superiority. No, if anything, the Bible tells us that God's grace toward us opens the door towards others rather than closing and sealing it off so that no matter where we have been, no matter what we have done, no matter what we think defines us, the pain that we have endured, the pain that we have inflicted on others, the habitual patterns of sin and shame, all of those have been defeated by the cross of Jesus. Through faith, we have access to Jesus. God has removed the barriers to him so that every gift of heaven is made available to those who trust him. This is the best news there is. And the reason for that, I hope you caught this, is that you are God's handiwork. The word in Greek is poema. You are God's poetry. You are God's artistry on display. You, you, the community who has received grace, you are a picture of how things are meant to be. I wonder, do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself as a masterpiece created by God to show his heart to the world because that's who you are. The people next to you are not ordinary people. They bear the image of God. The people outside of these doors are not ordinary people. They bear the image of God. Maybe if you find that you are deficient in love for others, it's because you don't see yourself clearly. You don't see yourself as one who is made beautiful in Jesus. Because the thing about people who receive grace is that they just want to give it away. For Paul, the gospel does not stop with God's grace to us as though the purpose of his writing is so that the Ephesians would know the story No, its purpose is to set them free, to be that means of grace to the world. A work of art is meant to be seen. And the rest of the letter is about how this grace gets spilled out into every corner of the world, how the personal experience of grace leads to the personal giving of grace. He describes the vertical plane of the gospel, how God has reconciled us to himself, and then moves on to the horizontal plane of how a reconciled and rescued people can become agents of rescue and grace and kindness out in the world, even a world as critical and as biting as ours. And so the question that comes for all of us is this. In light of God's grace to you, how is God transforming the world through you? How is grace being spilled out into your places of work, into your families, into your schools, into the places where you touch in your everyday life? Are you becoming a person who is shaped more and more by the grace offered in Jesus? Are you becoming a person more and more shaped by the negativity and the bitterness of our culture? So the invitation for this week, for those of you who are following along in our community guide, is simply to just reflect on this last year of your life. 
Have you grown in your experience of receiving grace? Have you grown in your experience of extending that grace out to others? And you'll know the answer to that question if you have a story to tell about it. What has it looked like? And the point of the story is not really to talk about you. Paul makes that abundantly clear. He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is a gift from God. It is not by works so no one can boast. Ultimately, when we ask you to tell a story, we're asking you to tell the story about what God has done in you so that he can be seen, so that he can be known. How can a world like ours know the grace of the gospel? Well, people will look for that signs of that grace in you and how you care for one another and how you love your families and how you love those close to you and how that creates an atmosphere of love that makes it easier to love those outside of your family and the community around you. How you hold on to truth amid all of the criticism and judgment of the culture with a posture of grace. I want to close with a quote from Leslie Newbigin, who's a missionary and who spent 40 years of his life in service in India, only to find that the place that sent him out as a missionary of the gospel, he came back and it was a culture that had thoroughly moved on from the gospel. And he had to learn again what it meant to be a person who carries a posture of grace into a culture that found what he believed, what he had spent his life telling others what they thought was frankly ridiculous and absurd. And so he wrote this. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer The only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Friends, the way that the gospel becomes believable is when real flesh and blood communities like this one become a living artwork about what God intends for all of creation. When the story of God's grace gets into our lungs gets into our muscle memory so that it works out in acts of love and compassion to the world around us. Friends, Scripture is God's story, God's love letter of grace to the world. May we be steeped in that story so that we can live it out.